the pleasure that I come here tonight to be with you folks. I've come quite a ways. I, my home is in the state of Washington. We have a, about 76 acres on a beautiful lake. And uh, this is our corporation headquarters. We have a staff of about 25 people that work with us. And uh, my work is the is the position is the executive director of Hope International. I'm traveling continually. Uh, almost every Friday morning, I'm on an airplane going someplace. I just a few months ago, uh, two months ago, returned from Australia, New Zealand, where I had been preaching for a number of weeks. I have been to the Far East, and then the Lord said, come to, to Europe and uh, to England, and so we, are, we have come. We go from here to in Norway, where we'll be for a couple of weeks, and then on to Hungary, and then back home again. I'd like to explain just a little bit about us, because uh, you probably have not heard too much about what we're doing. I think most of you got the latest book that I've written, called Adventism and Crisis. <laughs> Also, uh, we publish a monthly magazine called Our Firm Foundation. This magazine came into existence just two years ago, and we have been printing a monthly now. We're printing 28,000 a month, and they're going around the world. The reason I'm going to Hungary is because the people in Hungary had started receiving this magazine, and when they heard we were coming to England, they asked if I could extend my visit and come and visit with them also. Uh, the Lord has blessed the magazine. We're also on television across America on 650 uh, stations, television stations, and the Lord has blessed that ministry also. Uh, we have a program that we come on once a week called Truth for Today. And uh, that program is... Uh, with myself and uh, Dr. Standish and Dr. Ralph Larson. We uh, discuss the truths so precious to the Adventist people on television in a kind of a talk show presentation. And it's being well received. We have created also a Bible school in which uh, we have now a tremendous response uh, from our television program and uh, we also have another magazine called Truth for Today. I wasn't able to find some of those in the boxes yet, but we have some here that you'll be able to see. Truth for Today was designed to tell the world what Adventists believe. And so uh, that has had quite a wide coverage. Uh, our people are sending it to their friends and relatives around North America. We're in, I believe, getting ready for our third printing of that magazine. And the Lord is blessing that also. And so it's a busy time to be living, also a dangerous time to be living. Because we see that the devil has come down to God's people with great wrath, because he knows he has but a short time left. And friends, I want to say that we are living in the most serious hour of the great controversy of 6,000 years. There has never been a moment like tonight. 
And I believe with all my heart and soul and mind and body that our days are now numbered in this world. I believe the coming of the Lord is at our door. What do you say? I believe without a question that we are not cognizant of how soon the Lord's return is. I think that we have lived in this world so long that we are used to having the sun come up and the sun go down. But there's a day fast approaching when it will no longer be. And I think that this is an hour when we must make preparation for our souls to prepare for eternal life. Because without a question, we must realize that the Lord can only take us into the kingdom of God if our characters are safe to set. God will never take a human being into the, into the new world unless he is absolutely sure that we're safe to say. You know... Tragedy is that there are many today who believe that if you're good, that's all God will require of you. That a little sinning cannot be helped, but just don't sin big. Don't commit big sins. But my friends, it's the little sins that are as dangerous as the big sins. Would you agree? And Jesus has paid a tremendous price to buy back a second chance for the human family. And he has extended that second chance to the human family on on, on this basis, that we are here extended to us a time of probation in which we can be, God can be absolutely sure of us that when he puts us in that new world, that after we've lived a hundred billion years there, that we're still safe to say. Because God must be absolutely sure that sin does not rise up the second time. And in this second probation that God has allotted to the human family, he has put in our midst a tremendous power that can help us to reach out and to grasp that marvelous power that we can have the character of Christ perfectly reproduced in us. Do you believe that? And so, as we come here tonight, we come with, with grateful hearts. The devil has provided some difficulties in which uh, we know that he is a master of. He is, was the prince of this world. You remember, up until Calvary, he was the prince of this world. And uh, he still has power with the atmosphere, with the air. And with the elements of this world. And he knows when truth is to be preached. That he is aware that this is the most dangerous thing to his kingdom. And so he provides every way he can to prevent people from coming to listen. I might say friends tonight. That as we go into this study which is an important one. I'm going to speak tonight on the gift of prophecy in the remnant church. And I think before we do, if you would bow your heads with me and ask a special blessing that the Holy Spirit may reign in each of our hearts and minds. God, tonight we're so grateful for Jesus. So grateful, God, that you sent Jesus to our world. And Jesus, we're so grateful you came and took our place.
so that we soon we can have a place with you. And Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you've been our teacher, and we ask you tonight to be present here to teach us all things that we should know. And God, we want to thank you for sending your beautiful angels to be part of this meeting. And we know that in their presence here that you have put a double guard about us to keep us from the enemy. And so drive back those evil angels, Lord. And Lord, as we meet in this place, God, we pray that the Holy Spirit may again enlighten each mind. And again, Lord, as you have used me mightily in the past, again, Lord, to you tonight, use me again in a mighty way. Bless, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I would like to begin tonight's study by turning to a very familiar text to all of you, Revelation twelve seventeen. Of course, you all, I'm sure, can even quote it by memory. The dragon was what? Wroth with a woman, say it with me, and went to make war with a remnant of her seed. Watch, do what? Which keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus. Now, we have grown up, most of us, in a very protected era of time. Some of you here are as old as I am, and so you'll remember back to World War II, and which I had a part, some of you had a part. Some of you remember the terror of those days. But most of you here have grown up in times of ease and prosperity. Not too many in the Adventist church today have really seen hard times. And the devil has used good times to take our minds away from the important things of life, to get us caught up in amusements and recreations and uh, the cares of this world, and uh, has drawn the church, the Seventh-day Adventist church, into a worldly mold rather than to a spiritual mold. And tragically, as we come to the end of time, when the world should be on the rooftops preaching the marvelous truths and warning the world of its soon destruction, tragically we find the church to a great degree is asleep in its carnal security. And today, to a great degree, it is the world that's crying out that we have come to the end. For as we look at the nuclear potential of our world tonight, it's a frightening thing because in the hands of a few minds of a few men are the potential power to press buttons that we could annihilate every human being. But I'm grateful today that God put a promise in Revelation 11:18. He said he's coming to destroy those that what? Destroy the earth. And we know that he must hurry because minds of men are centered upon one thing tonight, and that is destruction. And at the same time, we find that the minds of men are searching for peace. They are meeting in Zurich, Switzerland, and in the United Nations, and they're crying, peace, 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 and there is no peace. And in 1 Thessalonians 5, 3, it says, when they cry, peace and safety, what? Sudden destruction comes. And tomorrow night we will talk upon a subject that will uh, deal with this uh, 
because I will be talking on closing events. I'm sorry that my associate, Dr. Grosball, cannot come uh, to this meeting. He had something came up at the last moment that, uh, that detained him. He will be here on Tuesday, but uh, he had to delay because of situations that developed at home. But friends, as we begin this study tonight, we realize that the dragon surely has come down. The devil has surely come down to the church as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour, because he knows he has but a short time left. And he is not, he is not concentrating upon the man on the street, because he knows where he's going. And he's not even concentrating on the Seventh-day Adventist Laodicean who is sleeping in his pew because he knows where he's going. But when people come alive, when they finally realize that this type of gospel that has been preached now for many years will not get them to the kingdom of God, that we can't go through the time of trouble what lies just ahead with a with a gospel that says you can just sin a little bit, but just don't sin big. The gospel of Jesus Christ, my friends, is a gospel of victory. What do you say? Amen. And that gospel, my friends, teaches that God has enough power to keep us from all sin. That she says in Desire of Ages uh, 311, there is no excuse for sinning. A holy temper, a Christ-like character is accessible to every repentant, believing child of God. And it says in volume 1 of the Testimonies, 144, it says uh, we, <clears throat> that we can stop sinning. A holy temper, a Christ-like life is accessible to every repentant, believing child of God. And we must believe that. Now, as we look at this statement, it has two parts that are very important to us tonight. Revelation twelve seventeen. it says there that the devil is angry with a church, with a woman, who is a church. Now remember that the pure church is, is portrayed here in Revelation 12, and 12 as, a, as a pure woman. You get another picture of another church in Revelation 17 who is talking about apostate church. And uh, it says the devil is angry with this pure church uh, and went to make war with this church. Now, we've got to believe tonight, friends, that we're in a war bigger than any war that was ever fought. It's bigger than World War II. It's bigger than Vietnam. I lost a son, by the way, in Vietnam about 17 years ago. And uh, I have one great desire in my heart, and that is to see the end of this world and the coming of the Lord and the resurrection. But he's angry with a church, the remnant church of God, because of two things. Because they are commandment-keeping people, all ten, and that they have a marvelous gift in their midst. And that gift is what? The gift of prophecy. Because if you turn to testimonies, I mean to Revelation 19, 10, they, it, this text is further 
amplified because it says the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So you are here tonight, you are Seventh-day Adventists because they have these two identifying marks. Now the devil wants to do everything to, to, to defuse and to take away these identifying marks. And so he has minimized the importance of, of the commandments. In the evangelical world today, they have said you can't keep them. And uh, we find now that, that tragically, because Seventh-day Adventists to a great degree have fraternized so closely with evangelicals, by sending their young men into the evangelical schools for their further degrees, that now we have come to a point that where we as Seventh-day Adventists are minimizing the commandments of God. And therefore, we are minimizing the importance of this second gift, which is the spirit of prophecy. You see, the devil hates Two things. He hates the commandments of God and he hates the sanctuary message. Because the sanctuary message is the plan of salvation in miniature. And the, the sanctuary message teaches one important lesson and that is there is victory through Jesus Christ. There is victory over sin. And the devil hates the victory over sin message and to a great degree, friends, he is... He, he has kept that great message of victory over sin away from the church because he's kept it away from the world. And so the, the, the gospel that has been portrayed to the world and is now being preached in Adventist pulpits is that you really can't stop sinning. And therefore, the third angel's message has never been able to to sound the loud cry because the third angel's message hasn't been preached yet. Let me refer to a, a, most, important, a most important statement in Selected Messages, Volume 3, page, um, Volume 3, page 174. We read this startling message. Now, I've Put those books somewhere, and where did I put them? Here it is. In Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 174, the, uh, this statement is made. Then the question was asked whether I thought that the matter had better be dropped where it was after Brother Wagner had stated these views in the Laws of Galatians. I said, by no means. We want all, both sides of the question. But I stated that the spirit I had seen manifested that the meeting was unreasonable. I should insist that there was a right spirit, a Christ-like spirit, manifested by such as Elder Wagner, Wagner had shown all through this presentation of his views, and that this matter should not be handled in a debating style. I'm sorry, I'm on wrong page. The third angel's message is the proclamation of the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus Christ. The commandments of God have been proclaimed, but the faith of Jesus Christ has not been proclaimed by Seventh-day Adventists of equal importance. The law and the gospel hand in hand. 
I cannot find language to express this subject in its fullness. So what has been the problem, my friends, that Seventh-day Adventists have only had half the gospel. We have preached the law until it's as dry as the hills of Gaboa. But until we put the faith of Jesus and the law together, we won't have a full gospel. And then when the faith of Jesus and the law come together, then the, the message will sound with a loud cry to the world. And we're going to preach on that tomorrow on the third angel's message. But friends, we are moving into a serious hour. And the dragon is wroth. The devil is angry with the Seventh-day Adventist people who are listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit and who are studying their Bibles and who are, who are praying that God will give them greater light. And I want to tell you, my friends, all over the world tonight, there are meetings like this. Groups of people who are being drawn together by the Spirit of the Lord to come into harmony with everything that God has for truth for them. And they, will, they are yielding their minds, they are yielding their wills to God and seeking with all their heart and soul and mind and body for the power of the Holy Spirit in their life to lead them into greater truth. Now tonight, as we see this great gift, let us just review in history just a little bit. Because we find that as we came to the end of the 1260-year prophecy, uh, we find that God knew that he had to have someone on the scene that would bring this message to the world. And the message was found in Revelation 14, 6-12. The three angels' message. And so he looked over the world and he uh, prophetically, that beginning of that message was to begin in the United States. And so he found a man by the name of William Miller. And William Miller began to study the scriptures, not from a position of positiveness to their, to their, to their uh, assuredness of truth, but because he was a skeptic, he was a Gnostic, and he felt that because he loved debate and because the churches were the place to debate in those days, that he would begin to prepare some of his ideas on Daniel and Revelation. And so he began to study. And as he studied, he was under the unction of the Holy Spirit. He came to realize that these were God's word. And he began to prepare charts and studies in which he was invited into churches. And just like a prairie fire, suddenly it all began to take place. And that message of the midnight cry began to spread over America, and then it spread to Europe, and it spread all over the world. Even Jesuit priests were preaching it down in South America. And friends, the whole world in 1843 and 1844 heard the first two angels' messages. They didn't have radio. They didn't have, uh, they didn't have a lot of electronic devices or television or anything like that. But it went like fire in the stubble because the people had an experience in Jesus Christ. They believed with all their heart and soul that Jesus was coming. And it electrified their lives. And it was the experience 
of the 1843 and 1844 that brought the world to the position that they were afraid that these people could be right. And they were afraid. And the world held its breath until the morning of October 23rd when the sun came up and they realized that the Millerites were wrong. Now they were wrong because they had misunderstood of what that message really was pointing to. They thought the cleansing of the sanctuary of Daniel 8.14 was a, was a message of cleansing of this world by fire and that Jesus would come at that time. As you remember, going back to Revelation 10, we find there a picture there of this disappointment because Jesus stands with one foot upon the land, the other foot upon the sea, and declares that time shall be no more. And it was Jesus, my friends, who put into the hands of John, he put into the hands of John a little book. And that little book, of course, was the sealed part of the book of Daniel. And he said to John, eat it up, for it will be sweet in your mouth, but it will be bitter in your stomach. A prophecy in which later the Millerites understood. And as the sun came up on the 23rd, it was... Hiram Edson, as you remember, walking through the cornfield. And suddenly he, the Holy Spirit took charge of his mind and instantly he saw a, a, the revelation of what really took place the day before. It was Jesus passing from the holy into the most holy place. And he went to his friends and encouraged them. And it was in a cornfield in which the Adventist church was born. And then immediately after this, we find that there was a tremendous exodus out of the Millerite movement, out of the, the midnight cry experience. Uh, we find that most of the thing, historians say there were probably 100,000 people that were involved in that midnight cry experience. And by far, the majority of them went back into the Babylon churches. Ellen White had to say, remember, in Selected Message, Volume 163, she said that those that went back or those that stayed closed their door. They, the door was shut. They, they, no more truth, no more light could come to them. And friends, that's, that's a frightening thought because the closed-door theory is as old as Cain. Cain closed his door, is that right? The Antediluvians closed their door. Sodom and Gomorrah closed their door. Esau closed his door. In Hebrews it says he sought it to open it with tears and he couldn't get it open. And uh, the Jews closed their door. Desire of Ages 3, 24 and 25. And she says in, that uh, the people in, in the midnight cry experience uh, after, that went back to Babylon or stayed in Babylon closed their door. And let me tell you friends, I believe tonight that the closed door theory is an operation. I believe that when you rise up against the straight testimony that God has given to this church, that you're pre preparing yourself to close the door. Would you accept that tonight? Yes. It's a frightening thing because, let me tell you, if the door shuts, you, you lose all spiritual rationale. You call darkness light and light becomes darkness and truth becomes air and you're going to fight it. And I'm finding that everywhere I go. People rising up against the straight testimony. And with all the ferocity and the viciousness that the devil can provide, my friends, they, they come down upon truth. And those that live it and preach it. But let me tell you, friends, 
All of this is only a signal to the faithful, loyal, and obedient that we're just about ready to go home. Praise God for that. What do you say? Jesus coming is much nearer than our minds can comprehend. But as we come to another phase uh, of this great message, we find now the faithful and loyal and obedient who remain in this experience, they began to pick up the, the, the scriptures and they began to study. And uh, they put line upon line, precept upon precept, here a little, there a little, to the law and to the testimony. And as they began to put it together, Ellen White began to have visions. And uh, here in Series B, a little book called Series B, on page uh, 56, number 2, 56 and 57, Many of our people do not realize how firmly the foundation of our faith has been laid. My husband, Elder Joseph Bates, Father Pierce, Elder Edson, and others who were keen and noble and true were among those who, after the passing of time in 1844, searched for the truth as for hidden treasure. I met with them, and we studied and prayed earnestly. Often we remained together until late at night, and sometimes through the entire night. Praying for light and studying the word. Again and again, these brethren came to, together to study the Bible in order that they might know its meaning and be prepared to teach it with power. When they came to a point in their study where they said, We can do nothing more, the Spirit of the Lord would come upon me and I would be taken off in vision and a clear explanation of the passages we had been studying would be given, with instruction as how we were to labor and teach effectively. Thus the light was given that helped us to understand the scriptures in regard to Christ, his mission, and his priesthood. A line of truth extending from time to time when we shall enter the city of God was made plain to me, and I gave to others the instruction that the Lord had given to me. During this whole time, I could not understand the reasoning of the brethren. My mind was locked, as it were, and I could not comprehend the meaning of the scriptures that we were studying. This was the greatest sorrow of my life. I was in this condition of mind until the principal points of our faith were made clear to our minds in harmony with the word of God. The brethren knew that when not in vision, I could not understand these matters, and they accepted as light direct from heaven the revelations given. Now, as we begin to get this picture, friends, we find here a group of humble people sleeping on straw ticks, sitting on apple boxes around a kitchen table with a lantern above them, with their concordances and their Bibles, putting line upon line, precept upon precept. And when they came to a point where they couldn't do anything more, they'd come to a dead end. Then the Spirit of the Lord came upon this little 17-year-old girl, and she was carried off in vision. And then God put the finishing touch on every one of our doctrines in this way. And out of this came the Sabbath truths. 
Out of this came all the important doctrines that we have today. The sanctuary message, the third angel's message. All of it was done this way by simple people who were not trained in literary institutions. And did you know the average age of that group were only 23 years old? We get pictures of their gray beards and their, their gray hair because we see them in later life. But when they came around those kitchen tables, Joseph Bates was the oldest one, and they were all my friends, young people. And I believe when Ellen White wrote that to a great degree, the last thrust that God makes through the earth is going to be through young people, through their vitality and their strength. And, and standing alongside of them is going to be some more gray hairs again that will help them and encourage them as we go. But let me tell you, friends, wherever I go around the world, I find young people who are coming to the front, who are studying the spirit of prophecy, studying the word of God, and who are preparing themselves for this mighty ministry that is being born from the grassroots of the church. And to a great degree, we'll find probably just as in Jesus' day that they had to buy the Holy Spirit had to bypass the trained ministry of that day because of the of the type of training that they had received. See the 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 brilliant minds of that day had been sent to Alexandria to the university. And they had come back with their mind stuffed full of Hellenism, which is a bootstrap religion that says you can do anything you want to do. And these they put these bright minds back into the into the schools of the rabbis. And uh, they had taught young people Hellenism. And to a great degree, the educational system of that day was responsible for the condition of the church. And it was Hellenism to a great degree that crucified Jesus. Because there was no room in the Hellenistic mind from a man from Nazareth that had no degree. You see? And so to a great degree... It was Hellenism that was responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord. And Hellenism had come, uh, had the Sadducees had become the Hellenistic party uh, in the church. And the Sadducees, to a great degree, were in control of the educational system. And when the devil came to the end time, he said, I did it through the educational system to the Jews. And he said it will work again on the Adventists. And to a great degree, my friends, he has been successful because today the humanistic teachings that are pervading education in the world have made their inroads into the educational system of the church. And Hellenism and humanism are the same. They're a bootstrap religion that says you can do anything your mind says tells you to do. And in that mind, there is no room for... A message that comes that teaches you can have victory over sin. You see, Jesus taught victory over sin. John the Baptist taught victory over sin. All the prophets that came to the church taught victory over sin. And they were put to death because of it, you see. They chopped off poor John the Baptist's head for it. They crucified Jesus for it. And anyone that has preached the, the, the message, the real message of the third angel is victory over sin. We'll talk about that tomorrow. But any, anyone that has come to the church preaching this message has always found himself in great difficulty. And it will be to the end of time. And so as we see the, 
the, the, the embryo of the church beginning to develop uh, in the, the 40s and the 50s and the 60s. And suddenly we find that as God gave this message to, to, the, to the leaders of that time and then as Ellen White put her final approval on it, let us turn to a book called Councils to Writers and Editors. And page 30 he, this is what she had to say about the, the doctrines that were being put together at that time. The passing of time in 1844 was a period of great events, opening to our astonished eyes the cleansing of the sanctuary, transpiring in heaven, and having decided relationship to God's people upon the earth. Also, the first and second angels' messages, the third, unfurling the banner on which was inscribed the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. One of the landmarks under this message was the temple of God seen by the truth-loving people in heaven and the ark containing the law of God. The light of the Sabbath of the fourth commandment flashed its strong rays in the pathway of the transgressor of God's law. The non-immortality of the wicked is an old landmark. I can call to mind nothing more that comes under the head of old landmark. So the, the landmarks of this church that were put together by the pioneers and the stamp of approval that God gave it through the spirit of prophecy through Ellen White were then the sanctuary message, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the first and second and third angels' messages, the law of God, the Sabbath, and the non-immortality of the soul. And friends, she makes it clear that nothing, not a pin, can be removed from those landmarks. Now the devil has been angry at those landmarks because those landmarks focus upon one thing and that those landmarks lead us to one thing. If we follow it to its conclusion, it, it uh, prepares a people for the coming of the law. See, there have been some tremendous misunderstandings in the Adventist theology. The two most outstanding are the cleansing of the sanctuary. <coughs> and the three angels' messages. We have been uh, taught to believe that the cleansing of the sanctuary is a judicial act alone, and that God will become weary of the great controversy and command that Jesus, the high priest, step out of the most holy place, throw down his censers, and probation ceases. But what we really haven't understood, my friends, that Jesus cannot complete his work in the most holy place until he has a people on earth who understand that their own soul temple has to be cleansed first from sin. And when the angel came down in 1888 to do his work, the fourth angel of Revelation 18 to do his work, he came down, but he didn't have a people that believed that, you see. And so the, third, the, the fourth angel was unable to join the third angel's message and swell it to a loud cry. But, my friends, without a question in my mind that that fourth angel is come. And today, he's going to find a people spread around the earth that understand this marvelous truth of the cleansing of their soul temple so that the high priest in heaven can cleanse the host holy place, you see. The second misunderstanding is that the three angels' messages, nobody seems to know what they are. We put them in front of our churches. We put them behind the pulpit, in front of the pulpit. We put them on everything we print, and nobody knows. We just say, well, they're angels. But my friends, 
They're only symbols, as we'll talk about tomorrow. They're only symbols. They're symbols that God has given to portray a people on earth that understand the victory over sin message. You can find that in volume 6, page 17, and volume 7 of the commentary, 978 and 79, many other places. And so we find that as we move away from the 1844, we find the church moving into a situation in which as organization came, because God saw that organization was necessary, you can't put a large group of people together without having organization. And so God ordained organization, but then tragically we find that when organization came into, into uh, in, we find that policies also were, were beginning to come in, and some of these policies began to be contrary to what was the direction that God was leading. And they began to lean on the arm of flesh and the policies rather than upon the arm of God. And the preaching had been on the law, but had left out the faith of Jesus, as we read in Selected Messages, Volume 3, page 172. It was added that the faith of Jesus had been left out. And God saw that we were moving into a very dangerous situation, and he saw that we had to bring the faith of Jesus with the law. And so we come to the important date of 1888, and we find that God sent Wagner and Jones and Ellen White preaching a marvelous truth to put the faith of Jesus and the law together. And on tragically, unfortunately, the, the leadership of the church thought it was a direct attack upon the law to minimize law, and they, they, they turned away from that marvelous truth. And the, the faith of Jesus and the law were not allowed to come, to, back, to come together. And therefore, the rejection of the 1888 message has been to a great degree responsible for keeping it in this world for a hundred years. And as we begin to, to see that now is the time and the message will go. You see, the devil has kept that message away from the church, and in keeping it away from the church, he's kept it away from the world. And now it's springing up like mushrooms all around the world, and the devil is frantic. He's in a frenzy. And with all the ferocity and all the viciousness that he can portray, he's coming down upon those that love this message and are ready to portray it in a lifestyle. And I believe without a question tonight that why we're sitting here, you know, instead of the tent, I believe we're, we have seen the ferocity that the devil can muster in a, in a moment such as this. Now, as we look at the gift of prophecy in the remnant church, we find today that that great gift that God gave to the church, and it was the greatest gift that God could give. There is no other gift that God could put back into the church that would be as great as it was the spirit of prophecy because God put this gift in our midst to make sure that we didn't repeat the history of Israel and that through this gift he could prepare a people for translation and prepare a people to give the loud cry to the world. And therefore, God, through inspiration, 
gave 54 volumes of material through Ellen White to, re to assure us, to reinsure that we would not repeat the history of ancient Israel. But if you read in volume 5, page 94, she said, and 160, and also in 165, 4, 165, uh, 75, 76, many places she says that we have repeated the history of ancient, the, uh, ancient Israel. And in fact, in volume 1, 129, she says we have done worse than they. Why? Because we had greater light than they. So as we begin to look at this marvelous gift that God has placed in the church, I would like tonight to bring to you three illustrations. From the Bible. If you'll turn with me to the first illustration is in the 16th chapter of Numbers. Numbers the 16th chapter. And in this chapter we find uh, the story of the rebellion of Korah, Nathan, and Abiram. You remember that uh, Korah was a cousin to uh, Moses and uh, they had come to a very important time. Uh, you remember that they had sent out the 12 spies into the promised land. They were at Kadesh Barnea and the children of Israel decided before they went over they'd like to have a little report of what the country was like. They were looking, they were on the other side of Jordan looking over. And so the church decided that they would send a, the best, one of the best men from each tribe over there to get a, a, a little idea of what they were going to get into. And uh, after 40 days, I mean, they came back. And they came bearing tremendous evidence that this was the land that God had promised them. I mean, they came bearing uh, bunches of grapes that took two men to carry. I don't think anybody has seen anything like that here or anywhere in the world. They had, marvelous, uh, uh, they had marvelous evidence that God had provided. And uh, then the ten began to stand up and they began to give uh, their, a different story. And they said, but wait a minute, wait a minute. You should see the men over there. They're giants. And you should see the walls of the cities and the gates. And I mean, there's no way to get in. Now, in all of this, let us remember that all of them had experienced the crossing of the Red Sea. They had experienced the manna from heaven every morning, except on Sabbath. They had experienced the water gushing, a river of water gushing out of the ground. Did you know there were two million people in the camp? How would you like to feed two million people? I imagine that, uh, uh, you know... The, the what's London must be seven, eight million, I suppose. Uh, but you just imagine how many trains have to come in and how many airplanes and trucks are rolling continually to feed a city. And God had a logistical problem on his hands because he had two million people where you can't grow anything. I was over there, and I mean, you can't, a little lizard can hardly live. And every morning, God rained down angel food. And every day a river came gushing out of the ground because someone has said that it, to, to, 
to do their washing, their bathing, and their and feed their animals, water their animals. I mean, it, they had to have a, a, about a hundred tank cars a day. Now you can imagine the amount of miracles that the, they were witnessing every day. And then besides that, we find that every night he put a pillar of fire over them because it can get cold. It can get very chilly over there at night in certain seasons of the time. And every day, to keep the heat away from them, he put a pillar of cloud over them. So the evidence was absolutely overwhelming that God was what God was doing with them, for them. But their history is one of rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. And so they come to this experience, and immediately when the ten men have given their report, uh, a tremendous upheaval begins to come within the congregation. I mean, they're, they're crying, they're moaning, they're weeping, and they're angry at Moses for leading them out. And then, of course, Caleb and Joshua immediately came and began to, to give their report, and of course they were drowned out because the people in the rebellion didn't want to hear. And they were ready to stone Moses, Aaron, and Caleb, and Joshua. And God intervened. And the story is a sad one because, because of that rebellion there at Kadesh Barnea, God told them that they would have to go back into the wilderness for how long? Forty years. For every day they spent spying out the land, they would spend one year back in the wilderness. And now we see them back in the wilderness and uh, they're, st they're around their campfires at night and Korah, who is a prince in Israel, I mean, is talking to his neighbors, which is uh, Dathan and Abiram, and he said, this man, this man Moses cannot be a prophet. He cannot be a man that's going to lead us. He, God would not do this to us. And so they, um, we find immediately that Korah and Dathan and Abiram said, you know, you're right. We better go talk. We better go talk to the leadership. And so they went to the 250 princesses. And again, Korah repeated his story. And the princesses said, hey, you're right. We better tell the people. And so they went to the congregation. And the whole congregation was in an uproar. Until Moses was forced to bring in Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And the 250 princesses. And they, he said, let's put God to the test. And tomorrow, if you'll come to the tabernacle, tomorrow, let God decide who's the leader here, who's the prophet here. And so they came. Now you'll notice in the 19th verse of the 16th chapter, it says, And Korah gathered all the congregation of them unto the door of the tabernacle of the congregation, and the glory of the Lord appeared unto all the congregation. So it was not, it was not Moses who called the church together. Moses called the 250 princesses and Korah, Dathan, and Abiram, but Korah was so absolutely positively sure that tomorrow he was going to be the leader that he decided that the church ought to come and witness the transition of leadership. And so we find him here. It says, Korah gathered all the congregation against them under the door of the tabernacle. And of course, 
Then you read down the chapter, you'll find there that they are told the 250 princes and Corridates and Abiram are told to fill their censers. And when the censers were full, then God would decide which he would accept. And of course, something began to happen. Immediately, uh, Moses said, if to separate, he told the congregation, get away from these men now, because God's going to do something. And uh, so the congregation moved back, and as they moved back, the ground opened up, because that's what Moses said. Moses said, if, if, I'm, if I'm of God, if God has put me in the position of leadership, if I'm the prophet, then these men, the ground will open up and swallow them. And suddenly, before the eyes of the church, the ground opened up and they were gone. Now, that would be an awesome experience, don't you think? I mean, to see, uh, to stand in front of church some morning and find out part of the congregation disappeared in the pavement. But that's what God did. And then, what happened, because the 250 princes had, had put uh, incense in their censers too, I mean, suddenly, God sent fire out of heaven and they're gone. Devout. Now listen, friends, don't let anybody tell you that God doesn't destroy. As God creates, God has the right to destroy. Will you agree? And I think the evidence through the Bible is so clear and so plain. I mean, the flood, don't tell me the devil made the flood. I mean, some would like to have us believe that. Uh, what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, the devil didn't destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we look at the look at the 185,000 soldiers of Sennacherib, I mean, one angel did it in one night. We've got to believe that God, at the end of the world, what who rains down the fire? The devil? No, it's God Himself. Now God does all of this in love because, my friends, God can only tolerate so much. And when that when the cup is full, that the results are going to be destruction, and God's going to rain down fire, and destroy this world. You can be sure of that. Now, as we look at the scene, now that we find that as the 250 princesses are gone, now the church is in retreat. They're running. They're afraid they're next. And uh, we find that, that uh, as a result of this, the next day, as you read on in the chapter, on the 41st verse, the next chapter... We, I mean, in the next scene is that the next day, the congregation, 14,700 of the laity, come back to Moses and said, look, you destroyed those good people yesterday. And as a result of that, the plague falls and the 14,700 die in the plague. Now, friends, that is a result of the rejection of the prophet when the prophet is is rejected there is always destruction do you agree Amen. now let us go to the second illustration and you'll find that in the book of jeremiah the 38th verse and let's go to the 21st verse first J jeremiah 21 and the 8th and ninth verses the church is in a, as the scene here is, the church is in a terrible apostasy. And uh, 
every time apostasy began to take its stranglehold upon the church, God always sent a messenger to the church to warn the church and sent message to the church to try to bring it out of its apostasy and get it to understand what truth is all about. And God raised up Jeremiah. If you read the first chapter of Jeremiah, you'll get a better picture of this. But in the 8th and 9th verse, 21st chapter, God gives a message to Jeremiah and to give to the church. And unto this people thou shalt say, Thus saith the Lord, Behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. And he that abideth in this city shall, be, shall die by the sword and by the famine and by the pestilence. But he that goeth out and falleth to the Chaldeans and that besiege you, besiege you, he shall live and his life shall be unto him for a prey. Now, I would say that was a very strange message, wouldn't you? A very strange message for a preacher to give to the church. Go give yourself up to the enemy and you'll save your lives. You'll save the church. You'll save the city. But because of this strict testimony that Jeremiah was commanded to give to the church, they threw him in an abandoned well. And he's up to his armpits in slime. And you remember it was Abimelech that finally appealed to the appealed to the, uh, to the king and got him out. But we pick up the story once again in the 38th chapter. And in this 38th chapter in the second verse, And thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by the famine, by the pestilence, and he that goeth forth to the Chaldean shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey and shall live. So as the, he gets out of the pit and he is now under house arrest, I mean, the message is just the same. He goes to the, to the king and gives the message again. And now in the seven, well, back in the 14th verse, you'll begin to see the picture begin to develop here because uh, the king is, is very disturbed. Jehoiakim, who threw him in the pit, is dead. And Zedekiah is now on the throne. And Zedekiah has a tremendous problem because he's, the city of Jerusalem is surrounded by the, uh, by the Babylonian army. And he doesn't know what to do. And so secretly he, pull, he asks, uh, probably after everybody's asleep at night, he brings uh, Jeremiah through the side door where nobody can see and asks him some very important pertinent questions. And you begin to pick up the story here in the 14th verse. Then Zedekiah the king sent and took Jeremiah the prophet unto him into in the third entry that is in the house of the Lord. And the king said unto Jeremiah, I will ask thee a thing, hide nothing from me. Then Jeremiah said unto Zedekiah, If I declare it unto thee, wilt thou not surely put me to death? And, I, and if I give thee the counsel, wilt thou not hearken unto me? So Zedekiah the king swore secretly unto Jeremiah, saying, As the Lord liveth that has made us this soul, I will not put thee to death, neither will I give thee unto the hand of these men that seek thy life. Then said Jeremiah unto Zedekiah, Thus saith the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If thou wilt surely go forth unto the king of Babylon, the princesses, then, shalt thou, then thy soul shall live, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and thou shalt live and thine house. But if thou wilt not go forth to the king of Babylon's princes, then shall this city be given into the hand of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and shall, thou shalt not escape out of their hand. And Zedekiah the king said unto Jeremiah, 
I'm afraid of the Jews that are fallen to the Chaldeans, lest they deliver me into their hands and they mock me. But Jeremiah said, They shall not deliver thee. Obey, I beseech thee, the voice of the Lord, which I speak unto thee, so shall it be well unto thee, and thy soul shall live. Now, the tragedy of this story is that the king didn't listen. He believed that this man, Jeremiah, was a prophet, but he would not follow the counsel of the prophet. So he disregarded the council, and the next scene in the 39th and the 40th chapters, you'll find here a terrible scene because the city is taken, the city is burned, and uh, Zedekiah stands there in chains. His sons are brought before him and slain before his eyes, and then his eyes are put out, and he walks to Babylon in chains. So, friends, the, 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 the point of this illustration is this. The point of this illustration is this. And that is that if you disregard what the prophet says, it's also destruction. You see my point? If you reject the prophet, it's destruction. But if you disregard the prophet, it's destruction. Ellen White made this statement in volume 5, page 680. It says, if God has given me a message to bear to his people, those who would hinder me in the work and lessen the faith of the people in its truth are not fighting against the instrument, but against God. It is not the instrument whom you slight and insult, but God, who has spoken to you in these warnings and reproofs. It is hardly possible for men to offer a greater insult to God than to despise and reject the instrumentality that he has appointed to lead them. It is not only those who openly reject the testimonies or who cherish doubt concerning them that are in dangerous ground. To disregard light is to reject it. Now, friends, as we have read this story of Zedekiah and Jeremiah, to see that to disregard the prophet is to reject the prophet And to reject the prophet is destruction. Would you agree? Now let's go to the third illustration. It's found in the second book of Chronicles. uh, In the 20th chapter. And you begin with the 19th chapter. I won't read it, but you can find the story there. The 19th chapter tells the story of how that Ahab had enticed uh, Jehoshaphat to go to war with him. They had, uh, uh, they had a meeting possibly in the, Ahab was the king of Israel and in, uh, Jehoshaphat was the king of Judah. And the setting is in the, in the land of Israel. And Ahab is, is trying to get uh, Jehoshaphat to go to war. And Jehoshaphat is doesn't know. He's fluctuating. He doesn't know what to do. So he finally says, do you have a prophet? I'd like to talk to a prophet. Oh, Joseph, Ahab says, sure, I got one of those. And he brings in several prophets. And, and Jehoshaphat begins to understand that these are not prophets of the Lord, but prophets of the devil. 
And he said, but don't you have a real prophet? And Ahab responds, yes, I've got one of those too, but he doesn't say anything good about me. But finally he brings in the, the real prophet of the Lord, and the prophet tells him exactly what's going to happen if they go to war. He tells them of the destruction that's going to take place. And tragically, Jehoshaphat is still persuaded by Ahab to go to war. And the next day, we know the terrible story of that uh, Ahab is slain, both armies are en route, and the, uh, the chariots of the enemy draw up against Jehoshaphat's chariot and are just about ready to slay him, and the angels of the Lord push the chariot away. And Jehoshaphat finally returns to Jerusalem. But now, as you read the 20th chapter, the first verse, you find there that there is a, a, a worse situation now because the, the, the enemy, there's three armies around Jerusalem. And because of his foolishness, he has destroyed the best of his generals, the best of his, his armament, the best of his soldiers, and he is unable to protect the city. And the only thing he knows left to do is to call a prayer meeting. And you find the prayer meeting here uh, beginning about the third verse. And I won't read all of this, but he calls a prayer meeting. And in this prayer meeting, you pick up a very interesting story and a beautiful prayer. And uh, we find that in this prayer meeting, Jehaziel, uh, a prophet of the Lord, a non-canonical prophet, and we hear so much today about Ellen White being non-canonical. But let me tell you, the, the majority of the prophets of the Bible were not canonical prophets. I mean, they, they had a definite work to do, and they, they went and did their work. They were prophets of the Lord, but they didn't do any writing. At least we don't have any record of it. And this non-canonical prophet stands up and says, Listen, if you will listen to me, I have a message from God. And if you'll do as God has told me to, for you to do, if you'll follow the directions of the Lord explicitly, the battle is not yours, but who? God. It's the Lord. And Jehoshaphat does the right thing. He follows the direction of the prophet. And the next day, they go to the cliffs of Ziz. They stand there by the brook and uh, do exactly what God has told them to do. They even put the, ch the choir, the church choir, out in front of, the, of their army. And I imagine that the king got into a lot of trouble with the generals over that one because I can hear the generals say, Look, king, if you're going to have a choir in this thing, get them behind us, but pull, don't put out, put out in front of us. But the choir goes singing, and the greatest victory that ever came in the history of the Bible comes that day because they... Because they did exactly what God told them to do. What the prophet told them to do. And let me tell you, friends, the only thing they did is went and pick up all the loot. Because the, immediately as the, as the power of God came amongst the enemy, I mean, they got so confused they killed each other. And let me tell you today, friends, that if this church will do what the prophet said, it's going to be victory. But if we don't do what the prophet said, it's going to be destruction. Do you believe that? If we don't do what God told the prophet to tell us to do, it's going to be destruction. And let me tell you, friends, there is a tremendous attempt, a tremendous attempt today to discredit the spirit of prophecy. And that may be the greatest sign of the coming of the Lord is exactly what is taking place among us today. 
in Selected Messages, in Selected Messages, Volume 1, page um, 48, we read this uh, inspired statement. It says, Satan is constantly pressing in the spurious to lead away from the truth. The very last deception of Satan will be to make of none effect the testimony of the Spirit of God. Where there is no vision, the people perish. Satan works ingeniously in different ways through different agencies to unsettle the confidence of God's remnant people in the true testimony. There will be a hatred kindled against the testimonies, which is satanic. The workings of Satan will be to unsettle the faith of the churches in them. For this reason, Satan can have, cannot have so clear a track to bring in his deceptions and bind up souls in his illusions if the warnings and reproofs and the counsel of the Spirit of God are heeded. Remember now, the very last deception is to make of none effect the Spirit of Prophecy. And let me tell you, friends, insidiously, he's been doing this for a number of years through the educational process. We have brought in the minds of those who our intellectual prowess is such that they feel that this is too simple. We, theology must be very complicated. And when you make it simple, it's not truth. And so we find that the minds of men have been... In, uh, insidiously working in the classrooms and in the pulpits to try to discredit Ellen White as a true prophet of the Lord. And in doing this, my friends, this is spreading like a plague all through our ranks today, around the world. It's spreading through a thing, and it's going to be, uh, as a result, it's going to be bring many, many souls, thousands upon tens of thousands of Seventh-day Adventists will be lost because of the discrediting of Ellen White and as the prophet of the Lord. Now, let me go on in volume 5. Volume 5, page 671. We read this inspired statement. It says, God is either teaching his church, reproving their wrongs and strengthening their faith, or he is not. This work is of God or it is not. God does nothing in partnership with Satan. My work bears the stamp of God or the stamp of the enemy. There is no halfway work in the matter. The testimonies of the Spirit of God are of the Spirit of God or of the devil. As the Lord has manifested himself through the spirit of prophecy, past, present, and future have passed before me. I have been shown faces that I have never seen. And years afterwards I knew them when I saw them. I have been aroused from my sleep with a vivid sense of subject previously presented to my mind, and I have written at midnight letters that have gone across the continent and arriving in a crisis have saved great disaster to the cause of God. This has been my work for many years. A power has impelled me to reprove and rebuke wrongs, and I had not that I have not thought of. Is this work of the last 36 years from above or from beneath? And over on 672, volume 5. It says, it is Satan's plan to weaken the faith of God's people in the testimony. Next follows skepticism in regard to the vital points of our faith, the pillars of our, posi uh, of our position, then doubt as to the Holy Scriptures, and then the downward march to perdition. When the testimonies which, which were once believed are doubted and given up, Satan knows the deceived ones will not stop at this 
and he redoubles his efforts till he launches them into open rebellion, which he becomes incurable and ends in destruction. By giving place to doubts and unbelief in regard to the work of God and by cherishing feelings of distrust and cruel jealousies, they are preparing themselves for complete deception. They rise up with bitter feelings against the ones who dare to speak of their errors and reprove their sins. So as we begin to look at what is taking place in our midst, we must realize that what is happening among us is the very last deception. Would you agree? And that means that we have come to the end of all things and the coming of the Lord. The evidence is overwhelming that we have arrived. We look at the world tonight and we see the treacherous terrorism that's sweeping the earth. We see the Iranian problem and the Iraqi problem and the, the Israeli problem and all of these problems in the Middle East. It's like sitting on the edge of a volcano playing tiddlywinks when the volcano is ready to blow up. And that's just about what's happening to Adventism today. We're sitting on the edge of the volcano and we're playing tiddlywinks instead of preaching the real message to warn the world. How many times do you hear the second coming of Christ preached in our churches? How many how many men are standing up and saying that the day of the Lord is at hand. Oh, friends, it's a serious hour. What do you say? And we've come to the end of all things. We today in our world, our newspapers tonight are carrying, and our television news broadcasts are carrying the exact words that Jesus wrote in Matthew 24. There are wars and rumors of wars. There are famines, there are pestilences, there are earthquakes in diverse places. And then it says, the end is not yet. This is the beginning of sorrows. And I, I divide it right there. Beginning of sorrows. And I believe the beginning of sorrows thrusts the Adventist people into the time of trouble. And we're going to see a time like you cannot believe. Some of you who are older can remember back to World War II and the devastation that Europe felt because of the, uh, of the marching hordes of Hitler's armies and where tens of thousands of men died and millions upon millions of people perished. Ellen White wrote in Evangelism, page 29, she saw balls of fire falling with arrows shooting out of them. And on our cities, and thousands of cities, she said, were destroyed, which means millions upon millions of people. We're facing, my friends, to the very last hour of the history of our sin-cursed world, and soon the birth of a new one. And the church is just as ill-prepared for the second coming as it was for the first coming. Would you accept that tonight? When we should be bringing our lives into harmony. Remember back there in the time of Christ's birth? I mean, it was, the, it was heathen men who had studied the, the, the Hebrew scriptures and who were studying the situation and came to Jerusalem to find out where the king was born. The, the, the church was totally unaware that something was happening. If they had been studying Daniel 8 and Daniel 9, they would have known, wouldn't they? They would have known that there are a lot of time of the 490 years, the 483 years of, I uh, mean, sorry, the, the 400 and, uh, 
90, 83 years was, was there, would, would it transpire in a certain place? They could take the anointing of Jesus, A.D. 27, and know that, that at that time, if they began to count the time, because God gave the time to them, didn't he? In that uh, prophecy of Daniel 9, 24, to the end of the chapter, he gave the time. The Jewish church should have understood the time. They could say that the anointing time of the, of the Messiah is this time. And they could have known, by pointing back, they could have known when, the, the, when Jesus was to be born. They could have known where he was going to be born. But the leadership of the church of that day kept it away from the people. And so we've, we come to this tragic hour, my friends. We are repeating the history of ancient Israel in every detail. Now, those are not just my words. Those are God's words. Let me tell you, let me read them to you tonight on page, volume 5, page 94. It says, the sin of ancient Israel was in disregarding the express will of God and following their own way according to the leadings of unsanctified hearts. Modern Israel are fast following in their footsteps and the displeasure of the Lord is surely resting upon. Many more statements that we could read just like that, friends. And by following in the steps of ancient Israel, we are now going to receive the same destruction that Jerusalem got. Let me read to you that from volume 8, page 67 and 68. Jerusalem is a representation of what the church will be if it refuses to walk in the light that God has given. Jerusalem was favored of God as a depository of sacred trust, but her people perverted, perverted the truth despised all entreaties and warnings. They would not respect his counsels. The temple courts were polluted with merchandise and robbery. Selfishness and love of mammon and envy and strife were cherished. Everyone sought for gain from his quarter. Christ turned from them, saying, O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how can I give thee up? So Christ sorrows and weeps over our churches over our institutions of learning that have failed to meet the demand of God. He comes to investigate in Battle Creek, which has been moving in the same track as Jerusalem. The publishing house has been turned into desecrated shrines, into a place of unholy merchandise and traffic. It has become a place where injustice and fraud have been carried on, where selfishness, malice, and envy, and passion have borne sway. Yet the men who have been led into this working upon wrong principles are seemingly unconscious of their wrong course of action. When warnings and entreaties come to them, they say, Does she not speak in parables? Words of warning and reproof have been treated like as idle tales. When Christ looked down from the crest of Olivet, he saw the state of things existing in every church. The warnings come down to all that are following in the tread of the people of Jerusalem who had such great light. This people is before us as a warning. By rejecting God's warning in this our day, men are repeating the sins of Jerusalem. 
The Lord sees what human agent does not see and will not see, the outcome of all human devising in Battle Creek. He has done all that a God could do. He has flashed light before the eyes of the people that their sins may not reach the boundary where repentance cannot be felt. But by a long process of departure from just and righteous principles, men have placed themselves where light and truth and justice and mercy are not discerned. This course has become part of their very nature. I call upon all who have united in a course of action that is wrong in principle to make a decided reformation and forever after walk humbly with God. These are no idle tales but truth. Again I ask, on which side are you standing? If the Lord be God, follow him. If Baal, follow him. Pretty solemn, wouldn't you say? Pretty solemn words. And friends, those are not words of men. Those are words of God. How many believe that tonight? Let's see your hand. Those are words of God, not words of men. And friends, we face a serious hour in our own lives. Now, some people want to turn their finger on the brethren and their words on the brethren and blame them. But blaming anybody today is not going to help us in this situation. The only thing that's going to help us in this crisis hour is to bring our life into harmony with God on every point. Would you, would you accept that tonight? To go home from these meetings and determine by God's grace and His power to live all the truth and to accept the words of the prophet as the words of God and not to violate in any way to the slightest degree anything that God has said through Ellen White. If we're ready to do that, my friends, this group can bring forth a reformation and revival in the kingdom, in the United Kingdom here, that will reach around the world. All God has been waiting for is men and women and young people who are ready to be stand up and be counted. That's all he's waited for. And he's waited in his long-suffering with us, his patience with us, he's waited more than a hundred years. To find a people that would not only stand for truth, but first live for it. And there, my friends, that means it's to, the, it, to the dotting of the I and to the crossing of the T. You see, compromise is what the devil's greatest weapons against the church. He's got, in every era of time, he's brought compromise. And a compromise makes another compromise, and another compromise makes another compromise. And finally, you come to the point you don't know you compromise. And that's where the Adventist church stands tonight. They don't know they've compromised. You see, it says in volume 8, page 41, it says, Standard after standard was left to trail in the gust, and company after company joined the ranks of the foe, and tribe after tribe from the world came in to take their place. That is a tremendous shaking in the Adventist church. Would you agree? Tremendous shaking in the Adventist church. And we're here. This is it. We're in the shaking. Now there are three phases of that shaking. Phase one is uh, false theories. You can find that in Testimonies to Ministers 112 and volume 5707. She says the, the shaking will be brought on by, the, the, by false theories. In the middle 50s, we find some men began to reach across the gulf to get the hand of the evangelical world with Barnhouse and Martin and Eternity Magazine. <coughs> there were two compromises that were placed upon them, uh, and that is they wanted to be accepted as evangelicals. They wanted to be accepted, uh, uh, and therefore 
the, the evangelical world said, we can't accept you because you believe that Jesus had a fallen nature. And we cannot accept you because you believe atonement is going on in the, in the most holy place. And so these men, in their great determination to find acceptance with the evangelical world, went into the vaults of the, of the white estates, and they began to search out, and they came up with a, a, a document called the Baker Letter, which Ellen White had wrote in Aust written in Australia to a pastor by the name of Baker in Tasmania. And as you look at this letter carefully in its complete contents, you'll find that Ellen White's not saying that Jesus uh, didn't have the fallen nature at all. But they took things out of their context and made Ellen White say what she didn't say. And uh, they went back to the evangelicals and they, and they began to portray to them, yes, we believe that the atonement is complete at the cross. And we have this document in which uh, our prophet says that, uh, the, uh, that uh, uh, Jesus had the nature of Adam before the fall. And the evangelical world reached across the gulf. They got our hand. And they said, you're welcome. And my friends, that compromise has led us into a horrible apostasy. Because when you, when you accept the position that Jesus had a nature different than us, then immediately you have created the greatest excuse that you can't keep the law. You see? Because he was so different. Oh, yes, he could keep the law, but we're different. We can't keep the law. And you begin to move from cause to effect, and you immediately, this is what happens, is that if that be true, then justification is all you need. And if justification is all you need, then the atonement can be completed at the cross. And you keep moving from cause to effect, and you will find that if that be true, then you don't need a mediator, and if you don't need a mediator, you don't need a sanctuary. And then you keep moving, and you find out if that be true, you don't need a remnant church, and you don't need 1844. And by the way, if you can't keep the commandments, you can't keep the Sabbath. And that's exactly the trend that thousands and thousands have gone out of the Seventh Adventist Church. So, my friends, the, the deception is among us. The very last deception is among us today. You see, the sanctuary message is the most distinct message that, is, that we have. There are other churches that preach the Sabbath. There are other churches that preach the non-immortality of the soul. But there is no other church that has the sanctuary message. And the devil is angry with the sanctuary. Because in the sanctuary, in a beautiful setting, God has portrayed the marvelous plan of salvation and how we can have victory over our sins. Going back to the days of Israel, God uh, instituted the sacrificial system. And in that sacrificial system, he was desperately trying to teach the church how terrible sin is. <coughs> Because when they sinned, they, were, they had to go get a little lamb, the most sweetest, most delicate of all the little animals. And he had to lead that because it was a mile and a half from every side to the closest tent to the tabernacle. And in the sight of the whole church, he had to lead his little lamb. And there, when he stand in line, probably for some maybe hours before he was led in, and there he had to tie that little lamb to the horn of the altar, 
And then he had to take a knife and he had to put his head back and he had to cut its throat and watch it bleed to death. And significantly, he was to know, understand that that sin was responsible for the crucifixion of the Lord. That little lamb pointed to the lamb slain from the foundation of the world. But tragically, the church got caught up in tradition and ritualism. And they, uh, the priests began to look at these long lines out in front of the tabernacle every morning, and they said, we better do something quick. We're running out of lambs. So they went out to the heathen, and they brought great big sheep herds. And tragically, the ministry, the priesthood, began to make money off of the, the lamb business. And what God wanted the ministry and the priesthood to understand, that there's no excuse for sinning, that this this sacrificial system was to teach the hideousness of sin so that Israel would come to a point where they'd stop sinning. But my friends, they never learned the lesson. And the church went from generation to generation to generation without learning the lesson until they came to the exact moment when all those millions of little lambs that had been slain where the fulfillment of Jesus Christ in that little lamb had type and met anti-type and there he stands before the church and the leadership of the church rejects the lamb. And the church rejects the lamb. And let me tell you, friends, we have come to a point in our history that if we are not careful that we are going to do exactly what ancient Israel did. Because as they crucified the second power, power of the Godhead to, to Calvary, we are coming close to a point where if we're not careful that we will crucify the Holy Spirit. I'm not literally, but symbolically. And that is the sin against the Holy Ghost. You see, when you give the devil credit for what God has done or the God... or uh, God the credit for what the devil does. I mean, you're preparing yourself to close your door. And when you make truth into error, you're ready to close your door of probation. And we've come to this moment, friends, and I want to tell you right here that did you know that Ellen White was more than a prophet? Is you... If you'll turn back with me in your Bibles to Numbers, the 12th chapter, we see something very interesting began to take place in uh, Numbers, the 12th chapter. We have the story here of um, um, Aaron and Miriam. You remember there that they became very jealous of Moses because they began to think in their minds that they should have as much responsibility that, uh, and a much notoriety and position that uh, Moses had. And I can hear Miriam say, oh, why should he have more power than we? I mean, I used to change his diapers. And Aaron said, you know, I'm the oldest. I should have as much responsibility as he. And uh, because of the problem that was developing, poor Moses, a very humble man, you read in the fifth verses of what God did. The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. 
And he said, Hear now my words, if there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and will speak unto him in a dream. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all mine house. With him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently not in dark speeches, and the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. Wherefore, then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? Now, it was an awesome scene. How would you like to be standing in the church and God, uh, God suddenly speak to you uh, 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 there in the door of the church and call you by name? It would be a frightening experience, don't you think? And here he calls Miriam and Aaron by name, and he said, Your prophets, I can deal with you in visions and dreams, and not with Moses. I can deal with him face to face. What God is saying here, he's more, Moses was more than a prophet. Would you agree? Yeah. Now, as you, you, you look at this, this was Jesus speaking to Aaron and Miriam. It was Jesus, according to 1 Corinthians 10, 1 to 4, that followed the children of Israel uh, in the pillar of fire by night and the pillar of cloud by day, it was Jesus who stood in the, here in the door of the tabernacle and speaking to Aaron and Miriam. Now you go over to Matthew, the 11th chapter, the 9th verse, and we see another incident take place in which um, God is speaking, Jesus is speaking. In the 9th verse it says, uh, What went ye out for to see? A prophet? Yea, I say unto you, more than a prophet. Who is he talking about? John the Baptist. So we find in the Old Testament that Moses was more than a prophet. In the New Testament, Jesus says that John the Baptist was more than a prophet. Now, as we turn to Selected Messages, Volume 3, page, um, page 74, page 74, we read these interesting words. It says, during the discourse at Battle Creek, October 2, 1904, I said I did not claim to be a prophetess. Some were surprised at this statement, and as much as being said in regard to it, I will make an explanation. Others have called me a prophetess, but I have never assumed that title. I have not felt that it was my duty thus to designate myself. Those who boldly assume that they are prophets in this our day are often reproached the cause of Christ. My work includes much more than this name signifies. I regard myself as a messenger entrusted by the Lord with messages to his people. My commission embraces the work of a prophet, but it does not end there. It embraces much more than the minds of those who have been sowing the seeds of unbelief can comprehend. So Ellen White said that her work was more than a prophet, friends. And the 54 volumes that she has written on every subject are proof of it. Would you say? I mean, on every th subject that she's written, on how to raise your family, read Adventist Home, how to raise your children, child guidance, uh, if you want, on how to, uh, to, to prepare your nutrition for your family, read uh, Councils on Diets and Foods and Councils on Health. On everything that touches the human race, God has given her the information that we need so that we would be without excuse. And as we come to the finish line, friends, the tragedy that I see among Adventists today that we have disregarded almost everything that God gave us through the prophet. And remember, to disregard it is to reject it. And I believe that many Adventist leaders and many Adventist pastors and many Adventist laity today are on the brink of that rejection by disregarding. 
And let me tell you, friends, if we do not, if we do not apply the counsel that God has given, there is only one thing that can, God can do, and that is destruction. That's the only thing God can do. When the church disregards the counsels of the Lord, history has proven over and over again through the history of the church that destruction always came. God in his long suffering allowed them, the church to go on and on and on and on and on until finally God dealt with them in captivity. We find there the armies of Nebuchadnezzar around Jerusalem and we find thousands were destroyed and others were taken off into captivity. And uh, we find the history of the church all the way through the ages the same way. They disregarded the prophets and destruction finally came. And friends, for us to say that this will not happen to us would be for perfidy on our part. Will you agree? Yeah. And I think that as we move into this serious hour, that God has a church. It is the Seventh-day Adventist church without a question. It is the remnant church of God. There will not be another church. This church will go through, but it will go through purified and sanctified and shaken down. Everything that can be shaken will be shaken, which cannot be shaken will remain. Volume 7, 219. Everything that can be shaken, it will be shaken. Which cannot be shaken will remain. Now, I said the first phase of the shaking is false theories, friends. The second phase of the shaking is brought on by the straight testimony. Early writings, 270, in volume 1, 181, she says that the straight testimony will continue the shaking. And, my friends, when the, when the, when the, when the church people, whether it be leaders, whether it be pastors, whether it be lady, rise up against that straight testimony, she says many will reject. And when you reject it, friends, you've closed your probation. It's all over with. You don't have to have the judgment of the living to have the closed door in operation. Because the closed door began when sin came into the world. Cain closed it. His mind got so far from God that God couldn't reach Cain. And the Antiluvians did it all through the ages. It's been done. And let me tell you, friends, it's happening today. When you stand up and reject truth, you're preparing yourself to close the door. And when you close the door, you, your conscience is seared to the point where truth becomes air, air becomes truth, darkness becomes light, light becomes darkness. And when, you, when truth is preached, you, all the ferocity that the devil can create comes in possession of you. In closing... I would like to refer to one more illustration. You'll find it in the 36th chapter of the uh, book of Jeremiah. You remember there in Jeremiah, the 36th chapter, that God gives a special message to Jeremiah, and he calls in Baruch, and he said, write this message down. And then he said, because I am I'm under house arrest, I cannot go to the church. If you go to the church and read this message, and so... Baruch wrote it down, and he went to the church, and he read it. And the king, who was Jehoiakim, was in his palace, and he, uh, somebody came and reported what was going on at the church, and he said, bring that message up here. And the message was brought in, and he began to read it. 
And uh, somebody began to read it, and as he, as he heard it, he was so infuriated by the message of the Lord that he took it out of the hands of the reader and cut it with his penknife and threw it into the fire. He said, that's the end of that, but it wasn't. If you read the 25th verse, you'll find that there were three men that did everything they could to keep the king from burning the script, the message of the Lord, but he wouldn't listen. And even more, as you go to the end of the chapter, the Lord impressed, the Lord impressed Jeremiah and gave him the, even more than he had before. And the message was written again by Baruch and went out. The king could not stop the message. Ellen White writing uh, on this chapter, just one little short paragraph on volume four of the commentary 1159. She said, this chapter is a record of historical events that will be repeated. Let all who desire to receive warning read carefully. So what she's saying here, everything that happened in the 36th chapter will happen again. And I want to say tonight, it's happening now. Everything that happened in Jeremiah 36, go home and read the chapter. Everything that happened in, in the 36th chapter is going to happen again in our day. And it's happening. Ellen White wrote, Ellen White wrote in um, Volume 7 of the Commentary, 985, she said, when the, when the gospel is gone to the world, there will be an attempt to remove the landmarks and the pillars of our faith. And friends, I want to tell you, that attempt is in process. She said, the very last deception was to be a make of none effect the spirit of prophecy. That is happening. And I think that as we begin to look at everything that's transpiring in our world today, that God is trying to tell the Seventh-day Adventist church, the Seventh-day Adventist people, the Seventh-day Adventist leaders, and the Seventh-day Adventist pastors, that time is short and the end is here. And what we do now, we must do very quickly. Would you agree? Because she writes in volume 5, 463, what we have failed to do under times of ease and prosperity, we will do under very times of persecution and, and and difficulties and that day is fast approaching and so friends as we come to the end of this meeting tonight as you know I'm not a I'm not a preacher that short winded but I think we've got a very important message to give and people don't turn off television in the middle of a program we shouldn't turn off the Holy Spirit in the middle of the sermon so I never worry about time I believe that when people come as far as you have and are ready to put up with the difficulties to listen to the word of God, I think that without a question that you uh, will come away from these meetings not by the blessings of any man, but the blessings of the Lord. And uh, I believe that very soon you and I, if we're faithful, will see Jesus come. I believe that some of us in this room will possibly mar be martyred before it's over with. Ellen White makes it clear in the book Maranatha 199, she said there will be many martyrs. You read in the book, uh, in the, in the uh, Revelation 20, verse 4, those people lose their head because they refuse the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is, is, comes when the Sunday laws come into effect. And that day could be very soon. I believe the Sunday laws are on the horizon now. All that the devil is waiting for is a crisis, is a catalyst to bring him about. And I believe that any, any time that you can wake up some morning and find the world went upside down while you were sleeping and the world will never be the same again. And you'll have times and difficulties and persecutions and trouble like there never was since there was a nation. 
And what behooves every one of us in this room tonight is to make that preparation. One thing I would like to make clear, and that is there is a fine line between concern and criticism. One is constructive, the other is destructive. And what I'm seeing today is I, uh, traveling the world preaching, I'm seeing a group that are have been concerned but who have been drawn over the line into criticism. And criticism will not cure the problem. Now, some people call the straight testimony criticism. You've got to define between the two. But we must realize that criticism is a devil's tool in which he will destroy us. But concern, everyone that walks through the pearly gates is going to have sincere concern about the church. And you'll find it there in the sealing message of chapter in volume 5, 208 through to the end of the chapter. The great concern of God's people who are weeping between the porch and the altar. But I, I, I find that there are a group of people within these concerned groups today that are calling the church Babylon. They're, they're saying it's time to get out of the church. Let me tell you, friends, this is God's church. And if you're faithful and loyal and obedient to God, you are the church. You are the church. And if you get out, where are you going? Where will you go? You're not going to help anybody outside the church. My friends, we have to stay in the church. I know today that there are many in America that we get phone calls and letters, even disfellowshipping are taking place because of people who are rising up against the straight testimony. They're turning upon the faithful and loyal and obedient. But we must respond to this just like Jesus responded. We must be able to respond with such love and tenderness that even when they kill us, that we can say, God, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You see, there's going to be a lot of people in heaven that had the wrong theology, but the right spirit. But there'll be nobody in heaven that had the right theology and the wrong spirit. And through it all, we must keep the sweet spirit of Jesus through it all. So be, let's be careful how we respond to persecution, how we respond to our brothers and sisters who do not understand truth, who haven't taken time to study the message, and who do not have the Spirit of the Lord working on them. My friends, if you respond in, a, in an adverse fashion, if you begin to get angry, and if you begin to point your finger at people and condemn people, my friends, you're going to turn them away from truth. Our only hope is that by the lifestyle that God has placed within our hearts and lives, that we can turn many to righteousness. Because they can look at us and say that we've been with Jesus. That is the only thing that's going to help our brothers and sisters. Not shaking our fingers in their, in, in their faces, or can, hitting them on the head with the testimonies. We must develop the character of Christ perfectly. Not by what we can do, but what we want Jesus to do in us. We must have the character of Jesus so perfectly reproduced in us that no matter what takes place, that we will and can respond just like Jesus would respond. And friends, the human nature is not that way. The carnal heart is not that way. You see, I was born a fighter. I mean, I grew up in the logging camps, and, and I didn't want anybody to step on me. And if they did, I mean, I, I didn't ever start anything, but, but I wasn't going to let somebody run over me. But that's the old man. Praise God, the old man's dead. And I don't want the old man to come alive. How about you? 
And we must be careful. We must be super careful how we handle this treacherous hour in which we are now living. Because there is no room for mistakes, brothers and sisters. No room for mistakes now. We have to be under the unction of the Holy Spirit day by day, moment by moment. We must be guided by that great force that God has placed in the earth for our advantage. And if we don't take advantage of that power, my friends, we're going to use human wisdom. And we find that human wisdom has always led man into the wrong track. And that track has led to destruction. We must be guided by the Holy Spirit's power. And as we're guided day by day by the Holy Spirit's power, as we grow in grace, we'll be filled with that Spirit. Let me tell you, Pentecost is not too far from us tonight. God is waiting with His mighty power to pour it out upon the church. And friends, when He has a people that believe and understand that their own soul temple can be cleansed of every sin, that there is no, there is no excuse for sinning, she says, God says, a holy temper, a Christ-like life is accessible to every repentant, believing child of God. And so when we take hold of Christ, when there is true conversion of the life, then justification is there. When we're so sorry for sin that we want to stop, then you're justified. And justification and sanctification are side by side. You can't separate them. If you're justified, you're sanctified. If you're sanctified, you're justified. And the only way you can be justified, friends, is so you're so sorry for everything that you've done that you want to covenant with Jesus Christ to stop it. And he immediately comes into the life and provides the power to quit. Do you believe that? Yes. And that's the only way you can retain justification is to remain in that relationship, in that experience.